Welcome to the Keeping Kids Safe podcast. My name is Karen Cohn. I am the co-founder of the Zach Foundation for Children's Safety. This is your number one resource for all things related to your child's emotional, physical, and social well-being. Now I'd like to introduce my co-host and my friend, the Executive Director of the Zach Foundation for Children's Safety, Megan Ferraro. Thank you, Karen. Today, I'm pleased to introduce Dr. Jessica Glass-Kandorsky, a professor, department chair, and a chief clinical officer at the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. She received her PhD from Temple and is a licensed psychologist in Pennsylvania and maintains certifications as a board-certified behavior analyst and a nationally certified school psychologist. She actively works with school districts to improve systems for all students through the reform of school and district-wide academic and behavioral policies and practices. An appreciative mom of two, she is passionate about child advocacy, education, and positive parenting practices and yoga. Welcome, Dr. Glass. Thank you. So Dr. Kandorsky, we recently had um, Dr. Louis Giangiulio, a board-certified pediatrician, talking with us about um, children's health and wellness, specifically as it related to COVID and how important it was to keep uh, an eye on kids who may be struggling with anxiety or depression. And it was such a rich conversation that we thought it would be great to have you on to really go into detail and provide some more resources to our listeners. Um, So um, before we get started, do you want to give us a sense of of what you do and the types of, of children you work with? Yeah, of course. So um, I am a licensed psychologist, I'm a certified school psychologist, and I'm a board certified behavior analyst. I currently chair the Department of School Psychology at the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. So my primary areas of interest and research-based and clinical-based surround parent mental health, family mental health, and um, the overall well-being and functioning of children in the school and in the home environment. I also have significant experiences with kids with developmental disabilities, in particular autism and severe behavior disorders. Uh, and that's the gist of me. Well, wow. so interesting. Uh, you know, I have four children. My oldest is 11. Um, I then have a nine-year-old, a five-year-old and a one-year-old. So we're at all different developmental stages, but one of my children has really struggled with anxiety over the, really since he was four or five years old and has been in treatment for uh, a a lot of that time. Um, We actually found that during the initial shutdown of COVID that it was a period of growth and maturity and development for him. So a lot of the struggles and difficulties he was having, he was able to overcome them. And it's something that we still work on every day, but it's much more manageable than it was before. And so I know that that's probably much less common over the scale of, of patients and children that you may have seen. And, and we know we've seen that the American Academy of Pediatrics has declared children's mental health a national emergency. And I'm guessing a lot of that's coming out of the isolation that we saw during COVID. Can you speak to that? Sure. Well, it's interesting what you share because I I don't necessarily think that it's super common, but it's more common than than you would think. There have been kids that have excelled academically, um, emotionally, 
socially because there were stressors in the school environment that maybe there wasn't a goodness of fit for them. So now they were able to either learn at their own pace, they weren't bombarded with some of the social pressures or the things that may have been causing them stress at school. So, so they excelled. I've had parents that have come to me that said, actually, I'm concerned that they're too comfortable at home. Like now we need to transition back. And then my response to them is, let's figure out what it was. So what was it that was the stressor at the school that may have contributed to the anxiety? Um, what is it at home? Is there more predictability? Are there things that you can take what made a child successful at home and translate them to the school? So if you think it was more of the predictability, if you think it was more of the, the social aspects of the school that maybe we wanna process more, so we work on those skills. It's not totally uncommon that a child would be successful. We also want to be mindful on the flip side that avoidance and reassurance tends to breed more anxiety sometimes, right? So when we're able to avoid the stressor or we're able to reassure ourselves to the point that we constantly need that reassurance and we're no longer dealing with the stressor, sometimes that could breed anxiety. So there's definitely a delicate balance um, when, when we're doing that. And with transitioning kids back into the school environment, I think on the flip side, we also need to be really patient. It, it's okay if students and kids were successful when they were at home. It's okay. And it's okay that they're going to go back and they're going to need a couple months to get used to the routines, to get used to the social functioning, to get used to all of that. We also know that there were a significant amount of kids that due to the isolation lost a good a bit of skills. If they didn't lose the skills, they didn't gain much skills. And in school psychology, we look at the academic, behavioral, social, and emotional functioning. You highlight it specifically, the emotional functioning. Megan, you have little kids um, up until the, the tween years. They get a lot of their specific social skills from their peers. So how to take turns, how to make friends, how to enter a group. Um, Karen, you have older kids. Your older kids, as much as it pains us as parents, they get most of their emotional support from their peers. So what we do as parents is really important, but their emotional support comes from their peers. So when we're seeing that spike right now of depression and anxiety, it is a lot of the kids that have that social isolation that they're used to getting from their peers that they're no longer getting. And we know that isolation is a huge risk factor in general for mental health concerns for kids as well as adults. So as we look at, you know, kids in that, you know, let's call it elementary, middle, high school age range, right? So less so thinking about the preschoolers, um, but more so thinking about those elementary school age kids. Are you seeing more depression, more anxiety? And then, you know, as an add on to that, how are you counseling or advising parents to look out for signs of depression and anxiety and what resources 
can we provide our listeners? I think as we're bringing kids back to school, we're really just focusing almost, there's this aspect in schools now called trauma-informed schools. And this was something that we were doing before a pandemic. Now we're in a situation where we have entire generations that have endured a collective trauma. So when you think about trauma-informed schools, the first thing you want to do is ensure kids that they are safe. So you want them to have predictability. You want them to have routine. You want them to know that they're safe. So as kids are coming back, what we're encouraging schools and what schools are doing is just letting kids know that they're safe. These are the things that we're doing to ensure that you're safe. We also want kids to feel as if they have some sort of agency. So giving them the skills, whether those are co- whether they are coping skills or just the skills to manage their environment. And while we are all concerned about the academics, we know right now that we have to focus on those readiness skills because if kids are coming back and they don't feel safe, and they don't feel as if they have some sort of control and they don't feel a connection to the school because they haven't seen the school in so long, they're not going to be able to process and get much of the academic skills that we want. So really focusing on that first, um, I think is key, especially for, for for your little ones. And the ones, and just being patient, because there has been that avoid, there's a group of kids that have really, they're going into second grade and that's their first time they're, they're going into, into school. And teachers really don't know much in terms of what to do. I had a parent teacher conference with my 12 year old and he said, I've been teaching seventh and eighth grade for 20 years. And I have never seen such young seventh and eighth graders, like with their fidgets that they bring and stuff. So there was part of me as a mom that was like, oh, who cares? That's nice. She's staying smaller. But just understanding that there is that aspect of maturity that they would have gotten from their peers that that they that they didn't get. Also, I think with the the little guys as well, we as parents tend to anticipate the needs of our kids and meet them. And when we're home, it may have been very difficult for us to kind of maintain that work-life balance. But when we were home, we were likely anticipating their needs and meeting them. When they get into school, they may not have some of those skills of advocating for themselves, asking for what they need, or even being able to identify what they need. And and holding themselves accountable too, right? Like, okay, I need to remember that I they need to bring this folder back to school tomorrow, right? Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. A big learning curve for my fifth grader. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, that and that those are huge transition years too. That fifth grade year is a big transition year. Yeah. What about um for kids in the more teenage age range, high school age range that may be struggling with, like we talked about anxiety, depression, or eating disorders? What can parents be? looking for? What are signs that parents can be really taking seriously rather than just dismissing as typical teenage hormones or teenage, you know, frustrations with their parents? Yes. Little kids and teenagers and adults communicate with their behavior in addition to what they may in fact tell you. 
So there are typical red flags let's say for your teenage population, some will have somatic symptoms. So they may, all of a sudden there's this increase of my stomach hurts or I have a headache or, and you can't really find a medical reason for those. There may be disturbances in sleep. There may be more irritability. It really is going to depend on what your baseline for your child was before. So anytime you feel as if, you know, this could just be teenage angst, but that's not my kid. Take that seriously and, and think like, no, just something's not right. He doesn't sleep this much. He doesn't do those types of things. Um, there's also some interesting literature that kids today, some of the things that we would worry about in terms of physical safety, underage drinking, car accidents have decreased. And some of the hypothesis for why they've decreased is that there's limited risk-taking right now because our teenagers are in their rooms and they're in their phones. So their rooms and their phones have become almost a coping skill. And where before there was, okay, we're, we're going we're gonna to go out or we're going to do this, they're, they're more inside. So seeing what their coping skills are for things, if they are, if they do tend to go into their phones more. If they, if faced with a negative um, situation or a negative emotion, if their coping skill is to just kind of check out and not process it, I think about how hard it must be to be a teenager right now. We used to be able to like do something at school that maybe we were like, oh, I can't believe I did that, but we would leave. And then the next day, people really wouldn't remember. And now they're just bombarded with all of these aspects of social media and, and those types of things. And then there's also the positives. There are positives to social media. I mean, it did keep a group of kids together during this pandemic. So looking for those red flags that are particular to your kids. Social isolation is a big one like I said, especially for high schoolers. So if you really see um, social isolation that you didn't typically see, uh, being aware of that too. I'm finding for my teenagers that they're so grateful to be back in school and appreciating it so much more after having to have been isolated for so long that I think, you know, looking back for my older daughter, you know, it's when you're used to just going every day and you're in the grind, you know, day after day after day, you, you know, you're, you're really thinking like, oh, I have to go to school again tomorrow. Um, but now with the kids not being in school for a year and a half or, you know, being hybrid and not having, you know, real school that they're so happy to be with their friends and so happy to be playing sports again. And, and even happy to be in the classroom with their teachers. I would agree with you. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I definitely seen that too, which is nice. There is like this zest for school again. It's right. not this, exactly. it's not so routine that it's become aversive. Now it's yeah, my 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 12-year-old and my 10-year-old definitely, I think, have been happy to go back to school. And that's definitely some of the positive aspects, right? And yes. Yeah. We know that, you know, schools are definitely keeping an eye on our kids and taking a look at what they've lost for 
the mm-hmm. past year and a half and just making sure that they're putting those things in place that can assist them to be moving forward in the way that they need to be. Yes. And so for those parents or for those kids that aren't doing as well, right? Um, there's there's you know, there's a population of kids that are happy to be back in school and maybe that have matured over the pandemic, but for those that are struggling, what are some resources that parents can look out for? Um, whether they're hopefully some, you know, tactical hands-on things parents can be doing, or, you know, if, if there's a need to go a little deeper and reach out to a therapist, is there a national organization that parents can look to? Mm -hmm. First, I would say definitely communicate with the school, right? So they can be kind of your first line. So there's a school psych at the school, there's a school counselor at the school, there's the teacher asking whether they see those things. Have they seen some of the things you're concerned with? and communicating with them, seeing if there are certain things you can put in place just as part of a daily routine to help support it, to see if that works first. If it's a significant concern, um, ask you can always ask for referrals from the school. I typically tell people, do sometimes your first line will be to go to your insurance company. If you have insurance, go to the website. You will get a list of therapists. There are community mental health-based centers that are needs-based. So if there is a situation where you do go to the school and you think outside therapy is needed and and there's a need, then you can go to, um, they can give you referrals in your area for community mental health-based centers. There was also a COVID line that they created um, as a result of mental health and blanking exactly on what it is, but it is like the COVID mental health line. And basically what they did was they just got therapists together that volunteered their time and they would triage people and find specific areas, uh, find out where you were and and find out therapists in your area. So you can say, I'm having this concern with my child. I'm thinking about therapy. They'll ask where you are, and then they'll triage you to therapists in your area based on what um, what the needs are. And then, as always, you, there's your crisis line. If you do feel as if you do have a child that's a danger to themselves or others, you can always call your local crisis line or the national crisis line, and they'll be able to talk you through next steps. That's great. Really good resources. And then, you know, when we were talking with Dr. G last week, he was really saying exercise and getting your kids socialized with their friends, getting them connected with their friends in whatever way you feel as a parent is safest for your family. Um, and, and really trying to make sure that you're helping put some guardrails around how often they're spending time with their friends, right? It's part of our job to encourage that as parents. Yeah, absolutely. And relationships and connection is one of the biggest protective factors. So we've just come from a situation where there are tons of risk factors when it comes to isolation and having relationships and um, being part of that peer group is a big protective factor. Also being patient. I have seen younger kids in particular, sometimes older kids, kids with disabilities, We have told our kids for a year and a half that they are under threat from something that they cannot see. So, and because they can't see it, every other person is in fact a threat. 
right? So being patient, if they're not comfortable with maybe some big kind of party, let's just say, okay, what if I invite your one friend over and we're outside? Will you be comfortable with that? What are the things that you have already done to make sure you are safe? Are you going to wear a mask? Are you going to distance? Are you going? What are some things that you can do that you feel safe? And then as parents, just having patience for the fact that they're it it took a year and a half for them to get used to this routine and to deal with it overnight. They're not going to be ready to be like, okay, the masks are coming off and I'm ready to party. We're not like we, we, as adults, we're not, we're not there yet. It's like, Oh wait, wait, I can, I can do this. I'm allowed to do this. So just having the patience. Yeah. I know I, my husband and I joke that we're, the pandemic was made for us. We love <laughs> being introverts and being in our house. So uh, I don't really mean that, but but the idea of not being forced to go to social events wasn't the worst thing. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. I never liked crowds. I, I'm all for a small crowd. So yeah, I, I totally get it. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, thinking about accountability, we talked about that a few minutes ago. What about resiliency? What can we do to help create or foster resiliency in our kids? I mean, we, we've learned, I think through this pandemic that our kids are actually way more resilient than we are as adults Mm -hmm. and way more flexible. Um, but what are some key takeaways or things we can be thinking about? So relationships, like we discussed with their peer group, with us, communication, recognizing that kids will communicate with their behavior. They may not always answer direct questions, but that doesn't mean we can't ask them, but just being present and listening, because if we're just present and we're listening, even without asking direct questions, we might hear some of those issues, specifically working through coping skills and problem solving strategies with them. So when they come home and say, I had this interaction with, um, so-and-so, and it really upset me. If they say that, um, or you kind of get a feeling that something happened, working on helping them label those emotions. We're all not great at labeling emotions, but working towards labeling them, some aspects that they could do to do things differently. When you discuss accountability, that, that really is just feeling as if you have some aspect of control, that you have some agency. As parents working on our own mental health, um, our own mental health is is huge when it comes to communicating with our kids and, and working with them. If there is parent burnout, we tend to check out. We tend to not be as available. We tend to miss things. We tend to have a short fuse. And we have all of these reasons why we might have that. So working on our own coping skills And understanding that all of us well-meaning parents want to shield our kids from being uncomfortable and experiencing anything negative. And that's where helicopter parents have come from or snowplow parents or, and in this pandemic, we've been able to anticipate their needs. So we've really just kind of been right there and understanding that helping them with the skills to work through those negative emotions because we're not going to be able to shield them from it. But if they feel as if I've gone through this before, 
I can feel this. I can get through it. I can watch it pass like a wave. And these are the steps that I can take is really empowering for resilience. Wow, that was awesome. I loved all of those tips. That was so great. And it makes a lot of sense, you know, just learning how to experience those, you know, I'm going to say negative emotions, that's probably not the best way to describe it, but emotions that are uncomfortable mm-hmm. and navigating through them. And maybe it is going on your phone and just kind of like flipping through TikTok for 10 minutes, you know, as long as it's not excessive. And, you know, being able to be with those emotions and knowing that they just will move through you, you know, they're Mm -hmm. not here forever. And, um, and, you know, self-care, it does need to be modeled by parents. And I know it's taken me almost until the pandemic to even realize that myself, you know, we just, and especially, I don't want to be so gender bias, but especially we as women, you know, know, we tend to just want to take care of everything and do everything and we forget about ourselves. And then you're right. We have parent burnout and it's not, it's not pretty. (laughs) Yeah. No. And, and, and I love what you said, because we've also, I think, realized what our own self-care is. I mean, we throw this word around, but it's different for everybody. I mean, I have friends or self-care is to run. That will never be my self-care, right? So, <laughs> but some people love that. So really understanding what your own self-care is. And it's okay to communicate directly to our kids when we're feeling negative emotions and how we're going to work through them. So it's okay to say, I'm feeling scared right now because I don't know what's going on. So right now I feel a little fearful, but what I am going to do is I'm going to take five minutes and I'm going to go for a walk or I'm going to, you know, do whatever. I'm going to scroll through TikTok. I do love TikTok, Karen. My 12 year old has turned me on to TikTok and sometimes I'm like, this does help Um, sometimes to get out of your head. Right. Um, Do a little dancing. It's good for everyone. Right. right. (laughs) And then I'm going to, and then come back and let them know, like these are the strategies I'm going to do so that I feel a little bit more in control, but I'm going to feel these feelings. I'm feeling these feelings. We think we can shield kids from how we feel, but we can't even the really, really young kids. They get it. They get it. They, they can see right through us. And if we don't tell them the truth, they're going to make up a story. And most of the time, the story in their head is going to be possibly worse than the actual truth. So it's better to just, in developmentally appropriate terms, obviously, but it's better to just um, let them know if you're upset. I'm upset. Here's why. No, I, good advice. It's Sorry, good advice. That's okay. And I've actually been trying to model that with my four now five-year-old because I'm finding that life is so busy right now. I'm not eating dinner until after I put them to bed and it's eight 30 and they want three more stories. And I finally have found myself instead of being like, no, it's bedtime. I'll say, I haven't had dinner yet. I'm so hungry. I cannot think straight. You need to go to bed so that I can move on with my other responsibilities that I have. And I'm now hearing him when he's in the middle of a tantrum, he'll stop and he'll look at me and say, I'm hungry. And I'm thinking, wow, is that, <laughs> is this all interconnected? I don't know, but I am lo- loving that he's able to 
kind of pause in the middle of his tantrum and tell me why he's so upset. And it's those little kind of steps that we as parents can take that really can, I think, pay dividends. I don't, I don't, I ne- would never have done that with my older two. I never would have, have said I need to eat. Right. And that I'm going to prioritize me eating dinner over your third book. <laughs> How dare you? I, exactly. And I love it. I love it. There's so much there. You, 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 you modeled labeling a feeling. It is really awesome for a kid to be able to say, I'm hungry. Right. Cause that aren't, we all know there are times as adults where we just know that there, we're off and we do something that maybe we regret and we're like, what happened there? Like what was at the core of that? And it also, when we communicate that it helps with empathy and perspective taking. And those are skills that are going to serve our kids well. We want them to be able to be empathic. We want them to be able to take the perspective of another. So you're communicating, you know what it's like to be hungry. I'm hungry right now. So I'm just going to need to eat and maybe we'll do another book tomorrow. So, yeah. yeah. Well, this has been such a great conversation. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you might like to share? I think we covered most of it. I I would just say as we kind of transition back that we should be patient with ourselves, patient with our kids, show ourselves a little grace, show our kids a little grace, understand that kids communicate with their behavior. So whether you think that something um, that the pandemic may have helped them or the pandemic may have been detrimental, figuring out what those things were exactly that were helpful or detrimental and look for any red flags. And those red flags typically are um, things that are really out of the norm for your child. There aren't necessarily universal ones. Communicate with the students, with your children, communicate with the school, ask questions, keep those lines of communication open and watch our own mental health um, because that that will pay dividends as well. Thank you. Um, Before we let you go, is there one hobby or any extracurricular activities that you love to participate in that we might not already know about? Well, you know, it's not running, um, <laughs> but <laughs> yoga. Yeah, I do yoga every morning. I'm a meditator. Um, I do guided meditation. I can't just do the um, complete silent one, but yoga and meditation. That is my, that's definitely my, my self-care and I can't recommend it enough to people if it works for them. Thank you so much for all your great advice. It was such a pleasure having you here with us today. And we want our listen. we want to send our listeners to you. And so we have your website. It's jessicaglassphd.com. And is there any other way that our listeners should find you? That's probably the best way. And I am at the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. So if you Google me and PCOM, you will find me there as well. Great. Well, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure having you on today. And we will talk with you soon. Thank you, guys. This is Megan Ferraro and Karen Cohn from the Zach Foundation. 
And if you would, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. We would be so grateful. Thank you. And we look forward to speaking with you again soon. 